Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 to 1. And we need you uh, on the show this week and on the podcast this week because we're doing big ideas again. Uh, we did it uh, about a month or so ago and we've got Suzanne Hayward, the widow of Jeremy Hayward, former Cabinet Secretary. She's launched a policy competition in his name to try and find some new big ideas to transform the country. And we want to play her some of your ideas. So... All you need to do, you've got your phone because you're listening to the podcast. You've got your phone. Get your phone out. Record yourself a, a voice note, whatever your big idea is, in a minute or so. Uh, and then email it to me right now, matt.chorley at times.radio. That's the email address, matt.chorley at times.radio. Your big policy idea. What should we spend money on? What should we tax? What should we ban? What, which, what should we legalise? Record it on your phone, matt.chorley at times.radio. And you can be on the radio and on the podcast tomorrow. But before all of that, we've got a busy old show uh, on the podcast today. Coming up, PMQ's unpacked. Keir Starmer, what did he go on? Well, there's a lot of borders and a lot of cladding. Uh, and Boris Johnson almost letting slip that there could be a big announcement coming on that. That's coming up next with PMQ's unpacked with Tim Shipman. But first is our columnist panel. And uh, today it's Wednesday, so it must be Camp Alice. That's uh, John Kavner and Alice Thompson. Uh, now, I want to talk, first of all, about the Labour Party. It's a really interesting story in the Guardian today. They've got hold of some leaked presentation, uh, which has been uh, drawn up by some, I think, pollsters or research uh, researchers for the Labour Party, saying Labour must make use of the, of the union flag, veterans and dressing smartly as part of a radical rebranding to help it win back the trust of dis- disillusioned voters. I have to say, reading a lot of it, it all sounded quite familiar, having sat through um, uh, all of the focus groups we've done on Times Radio, speaking to voters who say they don't really know what Kiss Time is all about. Uh, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's a bit of a scruff bag, needs to smarten up a bit. Um, and uh, uh, but what do you make of this, John? Is this the right approach for the Labour Party? I despair, Matt. Um, I, but before I, I despair further, I mean, what intrigues me is how the story was leaked or planted, uh, there's two possible options. One is somebody who shares my misgivings about Starmer's approach, and actually about Starmer generally. I think frustration is growing. Or was it Starmer's team flying a kite, uh, seeing how, how this lands? And in Guardian land, and the Guardian was the one that... Um, uh, got the story, it has gone down like a lead balloon. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean uh, in the audiences that they want, uh, the so-called red wall, etc., um, it won't go down better. And it clearly reflects that view. But, I mean, the problem for Starmer is not, do you go for the flag? Do you go for patriotism and stuff? Which is a bit like, nobody's going to say, I'm anti-patriotic and I hate the flag and I'm going to burn the flag and that sort of thing. But it actually quotes Clive Lewis um, and uh, and others who actually have dealt with the military in the past and saying, actually, this isn't patriotism. This is sort of faux. This is sort of North London liberals, and I count myself in that, trying to sort of tack in a tack in a Johnsonian direction. And you know what? It, there is just no point in it. Nobody believes that Starmer believes in this stuff. And I keep on saying you shouldn't fight the last general election. By 2024, this sort of, oh, we've mishandled Brexit, we've mishandled COVID, 
but we can get away with it because we wrap ourselves in the flag. I really don't think British voters are that stupid. That is the, the concern, isn't it, Alice? Is, is, these risks looking like people who, who think, oh, I'll tell you what all those northern people are like, is if we put a Union Jack in our logo on the website, uh, and then, you know, that'll do. Well, I found I despaired as well, actually, when I saw the Union flag with Keir Starmer when he was doing his uh, political broadcast and his promise to rebuild the country. Just because I think the whole point about Keir Starmer was that he was going to be slightly different and that he wasn't just going to be knee-jerk, jingoistic um, Tory, but nor was he going to be like Jeremy Corbyn and be unbelievably um, sort of uh, diffident about his own country. He doesn't really need to say that, you know, he loves Britain and he loves Yorkshire puddings and, you know, uh, <laughs> Mayfair. You know, that, that, that sort of thing is actually slightly beyond him. The whole point about Kirsten was that he was meant to be a steady pair of hands. That he was meant to be someone who understood the facts. He was a good debater. You know, he's had serious jobs um, I mean, I always find my problem with him is his hair always slightly freaks me out because it is so sort of perfectly done. <laughs> but I think it is difficult for him to get a breakthrough. I just don't think this is the way to get it. The way to get it is to have those facts and figures and to have the ideas and to push forward and to be the serious ones. And it is difficult because the vaccination program is finally going our way and that um, Britain is you know, doing quite well on that. But even when you say that, it sounds quite jingoistic and actually you don't really want that sort of debate. What you want is a clear-headed leader of the opposition who can pull the Prime Minister up when he gets it wrong, but also be supportive when he needs to be. Someone that we can all trust and we think that is a grown-up, and there haven't been many grown-ups around for quite a long time. So actually, I, I think the flag is the least of what we need. I think what we need is just, you know, proper debate now. I have to say, I'm not sure I could ever trust someone who didn't like Yorkshire puddings. I think that should be a question that all politicians have asked. Um, the, the interesting thing, it ca this came up at PMQs, I think sometime before Christmas, when Keir Starmer did appear to be sort of trying to play the patriotism card. But actually, I thought quite successfully, John, in the, pointing out that Boris Johnson kept promising everything was going to be world-beating. And actually, he was letting the country down and other countries were doing better than us. And actually, that seems like quite a smart argument to mount, which was sort of patriotic. You know, Britain could be better than this. And why is Boris Johnson letting us down compared to other countries? That seemed like an argument that might land better than, uh, you know, the props that he puts in his party political <clears throat> broadcast. Yeah, completely. I just agree 100 percent. I mean, the C word is what matters, competence and those leaders around the world who have been more competent in dealing with COVID and who are just more competent generally are the ones that, uh, you know, look at Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, uh, re-elected overwhelmingly. And that is the agenda. Of course, Starmer needs to develop a bit of a personality. And I think the problem is that he's sort of suppressing, well, uh, maybe the jury is out on the extent to which he really can cut through. But he's doing this sort of Gordon Brown thing, which is stick to a mantra and just go after it, go after it. I remember interviewing Gordon Brown and he literally, I said to him, sort of, how are you? Prudence for a purpose. Uh, nice day today. Prudence <laughs> for a purpose. You know, and it was just this sort of robotic, I'm sticking to a line. And nobody wants that kind of thing now, but they do want absolute uh, competence as the first thing. And whenever people sort of go after me for bigging up other countries and and talking, quote, talking down, unquote, Britain. I say it's nothing to do with that. It's about competence. And I'm incredibly proud of my country, but I'm absolutely not proud of what's happened to it. And I think that is the agenda that, that Starmer really needs to be going on. There also feels, Alex, like there's a, there's a slight issue that it, the sort of the clever, clever approach of Keir Starmer last year was to sort of support the government, everything they were doing. He was conscious that, you know, in a time of national crisis, he didn't need to be carping from the sidelines. It just sort of make it quite difficult now. Like it, it, this year, he's been saying, oh, Boris Johnson was very slow to lock down. But at no point last year did he say, I think we should lock down while others were, were saying that. And so as a result, it, 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 the, the sort of Captain Hindsight thing does slightly stick a bit. And... And it sort of puts him in a slightly difficult position now. That Now the vaccine thing is, seems to be going pretty well. Uh, it, the Tories seem to have had a bit of an uptick in the polls. And because we're all quite fickle and we sort of remember the most recent thing, um, the, 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 maybe the moment has passed for, for Keir Starmer to sort of land a counter-argument on the, on the handling of the pandemic. I mean, that's going to be the problem for him, is that 
if people only remember the vaccination program and forget how many people died of coronavirus and just what a mess it was with track and trace, he's going to have a serious problem. But I think in the long term, if, if Boris Johnson had an election this spring, I think he might see some sort of bounce back, actually, if most of the country had been vaccinated by then, or at least the over 50s. Um, I think the problem is going to come for Johnson really later on in the next year or two when I don't think we're over this. Just because we've got the vaccine, we're going to have an incredibly difficult economic period. And there are a lot of policies and a lot of arguments that Boris Johnson started, you know, with the civil service, with the BBC, with the judiciary. Um, he's really going to be fighting on all sides. And I think that will be fascinating. Um, in the end, to really see whether Keir Starmer can take advantage of that. He's not going to be able to do that much now. I don't think there's any point in criticising the vaccination policy in any way at all. I think what he should do now is look forward and see what he's going to have to do for the next two or three years. And I don't think waving the flag is going to be the answer. <laughs> it's a really good point, though. The, 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 yeah, the old, the old saying is the economy stupid will probably end up. That's going to be a far more significant thing by the time of the next election, as when we get it. Um, let's turn our attention to Russia, John. And uh, this uh, the case of Alexei Navalny uh, now being jailed <clears> for three and a half years for what uh, Russia says uh, was violating the conditions of a suspended sentence, although that was in part because he was in a coma, um, and he, that's why he didn't attend his parole uh, um, meetings. Um, what's going on in Russia? We, we've spoken to our, our correspondent Mark Bennett a few times, and he said you know, mm. that the protests are so big that even the state media's felt obliged to cover them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I lived and worked in Russia as a correspondent for The Telegraph back in the day when communism ended, and I've, I've followed the place closely and I've got um, quite a considerable number of, of friends who are involved in this but also some some who are in exile and it's interesting that Navalny chose even though they almost almost succeeded in killing him uh, in going back he knew absolutely that they were going to throw him in prison uh, the actual smarter thing to have done would have actually to put him in under house arrest and taken away all his technology and made it very hard for him to communicate or for others to communicate with him. But this is different. I, When he was very much uh, at the forefront of things around 2012, uh, various Russian friends were getting terribly excited. And I said, uh -uh, it's not going to happen because the middle classes are actually doing, you know, for all the corruption and state violence of Putin, the middle classes are actually doing quite well. And that's not the case now. The living standards, partly through sanctions and just partly through... Putin's mismanagement to the fact that nobody wants to invest seriously in, in Russia. Um, living standards have gone down. People are more angry. They just see, they've always seen, but they see it more clearly now than ever, a kleptocracy. Putin cannot leave because he would just face God knows what, but um, all kinds of attempts at arresting him. And so he is literally going to stay there until he dies. Um, and he is going to do whatever it takes to stay in power. And he, I wouldn't say he's freaked out by, by Navalny, but he is worried by him, about him. Yeah, and it's, it, yeah, it, it, it's sort of striking how what seems like a sort of insurmountable uh, force in terms of, you know, Putin's Russia. You know, just it, it takes time, but sometimes it builds up ahead of steam. Uh, just because I've got to want to run out of time, let's talk about uh, Captain Tom. And Alice, you interviewed Captain Tom. You've written about that for the Times today. Yes, yeah, so I interviewed him in May, actually, when he had just got £33 um, million pounds for the NHS and had become a national darling and was rather extraordinary. And I interviewed him on Zoom from his home, but he, even then, actually, he wasn't at all worried about getting the virus. So when I heard he died, I remembered that he said, actually, at the time, you know, if I get it, I get it. You know, you have endless chances of dying. And in the end, everyone has a turn. It has to happen sometime. And I think what he meant by that was really that he felt that not only he'd had rather an extraordinary life from, you know, the Second World War on and, you know, his late marriage and, um, you know, that, that, that what he'd done before the last year. But the last year had been really quite sensational and, and ending your life doing what he did, which was becoming a national figurehead, was rather an amazing way to go. Uh, what do you make of it, um, uh, John? I mean, I, I, I sort of remember the, you know, the the uh, this phenomenal amount of money that he raised last summer, but the mm. reaction to his death yesterday is ex is ex is extraordinary. I think it was going to that it, one could have predicted the extraordinary reaction to him because his the moment he he did his his great walk 
and raised that huge amount of money, the public response, everybody has been looking, not just for a kind of good news story in terms of a diversion, but something more fundamental than that, a good news story that makes them feel that there is hope and there are people that do good things even at an incredibly frail late stage of their lives. And what I like about him is uh, it's not just, as Alice says, the, the war story and all of that, which is the more traditional, we've been talking about wrapping yourself in the flag, it's yeah. the more traditional self-identification of Britain or a certain type of Britain. But it was the fact that he was doing this for the NHS, which is a post-war thing. It's a, uh, it's a collectivist thing, and it was the start of the welfare state, which has often felt underfunded and and beleaguered so i think it was the merging of the contemporary and the traditional but and it was just the the fact that he just seemed just you know i didn't meet him unlike alice but just seemed such an incredibly nice man and i suppose it's one of the in a way because his story was re, you know fairly unremarkable he he was a normal person who just did something and it sort of caught light and then it um you know, in a particularly in a year when we didn't have a uh, huge amount of things to be sort of positive, it was something you could be unashamedly positive about. There was no debate. There was no sort of, um, you know, Twitter backlash or anything like that. It was just sort of unashamedly positive. On the broader question of, because one of the things, I think it was an extraordinary thing that he did, but the fact that fundraising for the NHS strikes me as a is an interesting uh, thing. It's obviously, you know, people uh, love the NHS. And we've talked before about, you know, it's almost a pseudo-religion in this country. But at what point do we have a national debate about whether or not the, that we should actually just spend some more money on the NHS, Alice? Does that turn into, you know, all the people who are enthusiastically applauding um, uh, Captain Tom and the work that he did to try and support the NHS? You know, are we, are we going to be willing to put a penny on income tax to fund the NHS properly? Well, that was the only, um, I think, probably the only criticism of uh, Captain Tom's campaign in the end was not that he'd done it, but that he should have had to do it and why he had to do it. And it did then probably deflect some money away from other charities when the government really is supposed to be funding the NHS. But on the other hand, I don't think now that he's just died is almost the moment to talk about it just because he, you know, it was just such a feel-good factor that no one wanted any criticism yeah. out of it you know there were so many tiny parts of him that were really just entertaining and he was incredibly funny himself but i remember him saying his favorite thing had been driving his wife to m&s which was just sort of deeply english really <laughs> and uh that he had his man shed and that um even in his 90s he was making sunday lunch with the yorkshire puddings for the grandchildren you see York, um, it all comes back to yorkshire we're back to yorkshire pudding again <laughs> yes and the he theme had this of the day. i remember when they said halfway through lockdown when they'd been rather stunned because actually he'd managed to go on the internet on his own and he'd ordered a running machine, which suddenly turned up in the drive of the grandchildren. And they, no one could understand who had ordered a running machine. It never occurred to them that the 99-year-old might have actually managed to go on <laughs> his, um, onto the computer and order it for himself. And so there were lots of very funny, entertaining things. And I think that's what has kept us all going. So I really like that sense of optimism when I talked to him. And I found it really, um, he was just very amusing. He didn't mind being a celebrity, he pretended he didn't know what one was. I thought Dame Vera Lynn had been absolutely extraordinary. And obviously he had met her, but she'd never realised she'd met him. So he was very good at the self-depreciation. So it was that sense, actually, of what Labour really wants in a way, but can't quite identify, mm -hmm. of, of a very British man. And it wasn't the colour of his skin and it wasn't, you know, actually his sexuality or anything that really mattered. What mattered was that he was just portraying a very sort of sense of Britishness, of the sort of, you know, keep going, um, don't take yourself too seriously, try and help out a bit. And I think that's what everyone absolutely adored about him. So, yes, he shouldn't have had to raise for the NHS, but in a way that wasn't the main part of it. The main part yeah, of it was that yeah, he just yeah. turned into our cheerleader. Well, I think we've talking decided... Yorkshire... Sorry, I was just going to say talking. I was just going to say something a bit trite, but um, talking of Yorkshire pudding and and Keir Starmer, I was just thinking that um, and traditional and traditional displays of, of Britishness and British cuisine in Islington pubs, uh, in other words, Keir Starmer's parish. Instead of bread and butter pudding, you can get brioche and butter pudding, and I'm <laughs> I'm just wondering what. <laughs> What the Remainerish globalized um, me type um, would have uh, as as a Yorkshire as a Yorkshire pudding? Is it a sort of Toulouse pudding or a sort of um, 
I don't know, um, a Tuscany pudding. That was John Kavner and Alice Thompson. Of course, you can read them both in the Times, on Times Online, every week. Alice on a Wednesday, John on a Friday. You just need to get yourself a Times subscription. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's PMQ's Unpacked. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, and now it's time for this. PMQ's Unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley and Tim Shipman. Yes, as ever, Tim Shipman, the t- political editor of the Sunday Times, joins me. How are you doing, Tim? Yeah, I'm good, Matt. Uh, so uh, right now in the House of Commons, uh, Lindsay Hoyle is uh, having uh, um, telling MPs about a, a minute's silence they're giving to uh, Captain Tom. We expect probably he's he's likely to, to come up join PMQs today. I imagine they will fall over themselves to come up with the most florid tribute possible um, and quite right, too. But uh, it will be one of those occasions where the adjectives will flow. Uh, aside from that, what else do we also anticipate uh, at PMQs today? It's one of those, we, we keep talking about this, the, the better the vaccine rollout goes, the slightly trickier things become for Keir Starmer. Yeah, I mean, Keir Starmer's got a couple of things he can go at, hasn't he? I mean, the, there's still concerns about um, foreign mutant vaccines, uh, the South African variant, uh, the Brazilian variant, and now we've got variants of our own Kent variant, which resemble the South African and the Brazilian variants, which appear to be slightly more uh, problematic in terms of transmission and potentially uh, in terms of uh, fatalities. Um, and you've still got an argument going on in the, the cabinet over whether the borders should be properly shut um, to try and uh, stop the spread of these uh, these new variants. So Starmer's had two goes at that in recent weeks. He might have another one. I mean, Brexit is clearly becoming a problem, but um, in terms of uh, the, the issues on the Irish border, um, Michael Gove begging for more time today. You would think an opposition leader would go at that, but Starmer hasn't shown much inclination to go after Brexit. Uh, well, we'll see uh, what before, in fact, we get to Keir Starmer, we are going to hear from um, uh, Theresa May. But first, Boris Johnson. Mr Speaker, Captain Sir Tom Moore, or Captain Tom, as we all came to know him, dedicated his life to serving his country and others. His was a long life lived well, whether during his time defending our nation as an army officer and last year bringing the country together through his incredible fundraising drive for the NHS that gave millions a chance to thank the extraordinary men and women of our NHS who protected us in this pandemic. 
as Captain Tom repeatedly reminded us, please remember tomorrow will be a good day. He inspired the very best in us all and his legacy will continue to do so for generations to come. Mr Speaker, we now all have the opportunity to show our appreciation for him and all that he stood for and believed in. That's why I encourage everyone to join in a national clap for Captain Tom and all those health workers for whom he raised money at 6pm this evening. Mr Speaker, this morning I have meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. OK, well, let's just uh, jump in there while he takes a backbench uh, question from uh, Claire Hanna. Um, interesting that Boris Johnson, I mean, tomorrow will be a good, uh, a good day. That's a sort of Boris Johnson slogan um, uh, at the best of times anyway, Tim. Um, and encouraging people to, to do a clap for Captain Tom tonight. Well, Boris Johnson keen to sort of recapture that spirit of national togetherness that we saw in the first lockdown, which has been somewhat absent probably um, from uh, more recent months. But, you know, Boris Johnson's got quite a lot of stuff in his locker this week that he can hit back at Keir Starmer with. You know, we've heard that the Oxford vaccine um, is pretty effective in one shot. It appears to um, uh, get more effective if they leave the, the time between the two shots longer, which was a gamble the government took. That looks to have paid off. And of course, we've had all this uh, shambles with uh, the European Commission over the last few days, which have started to make some of the decisions Boris Johnson's government made last spring look quite good. And so his tail is up. Um, and um, if he can recapture that sort of mood of togetherness, um, he's going to have a better year. His poll ratings are up a little bit as well. I mean, we should probably shouldn't read too much into that, but it is much as uh, uh, opponents of Boris Johnson might not like it um, uh, and his uh, fiercest critics. But um, he does seem, you know, he's you it, you wouldn't have been surprised if the Tories were 10 points behind right now, given everything's happened the past 12 months. And that's just not happened. No, that's right. I mean, though I have to say, I've never lost a tenner betting that Boris Johnson will bounce back, um, you know, <laughs> his way throughout, you know, the last couple of decades. Okay, uh, before we get to Keir Starmer, we get to hear from uh, Boris Johnson's predecessor. Theresa May is up in the House of Commons. Uh, but will she cause him more problems than uh, the Labour leader? Let's take a listen. ...time of darkness and a true gentleman. I'm sure my right honourable friend is aware that my 10-minute rule bill would increase the maximum penalty for death by dangerous driving to life imprisonment. The policy and the bill have cross-party support. The policy has government support. The bill does not. The government says it will introduce the policy in its sentencing bill, of which we have seen as yet no sign. So will the government now give government time to my bill to ensure this necessary change is put on the statute book as soon as possible? Prime Minister. I'm very grateful to my right honourable friend, and uh, she's absolutely right to campaign for punishments that uh, fit the crime, and we're therefore bringing forward exactly those changes, uh, Mr Speaker, and uh, in our forthcoming uh, sentencing bill. And our proposals, I believe, uh, will go as far, if not even further, uh, than those that she wants by raising the maximum penalty uh, for causing death by careless driving when under the influence of drugs uh, or alcohol. And they will tighten the law for those who cause serious injury by careless driving. Uh, let's just jump in uh, there just very quickly, Tim. I mean, the, the interesting thing, of course, is worth pointing out that Theresa May was Home Secretary for uh, six years, then Prime Minister for another uh, three or four. Um, if she, she didn't make this change during that time, is basically what I was going to point out. Net then, but, uh, yeah. I mean, it's rather charming, isn't it? I mean, Theresa May has actually made some sort of big picture, rather critical comments about Boris Johnson. But what everybody says is that she's a dutiful uh, you know, MP for her patch and uh, is now behaving like a sort of uh, grown-up backbencher, coming up with 10-minute rule bills and private members' bills and all the rest of it. It's a rather charmingly quaint scene, seeing a former Prime Minister uh, pushing a small uh, change like this. Um, but uh, I doubt as PM that she would have bowed to a backbench bill. Um, and uh, this Prime Minister hasn't either. Um, yeah, he... I, I can't imagine her uh, bending over backwards for David Cameron's backbench bill if he'd have stayed in the House of Commons. But anyway, uh, let, to, the, to the main event, if you like, the main business. This, uh, let's kick off with uh, Keir Starmer in the House of Commons. Welcome to the Leader of the Opposition, Keir Starmer. Yeah. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I join you and the Prime Minister in sending my condolences to the family of Captain Sir Tom Moore? 
Um, he, perhaps more than anyone, um, embodied the spirit of Britain, and he will be sadly missed. And I welcome the initiative that the Prime Minister spoke of, of a clap um, this evening. Mr Speaker, our thoughts are also with the family of Maureen Colquhoun, the first openly lesbian MP and a great champion of women's rights. Mr Speaker, let me pay tribute to our NHS and all of those on the front line who are delivering the vaccine. Today we're likely to hit 10 million vaccinations, which is remarkable. The biggest risk to the vaccine programme at the moment is the arrival of new variants, such as the South African variant. On that issue, the government's own scientist, Sage, said two weeks ago, and I quote, only a complete preemptive closure of borders or the mandatory quarantine of all visitors upon arrival can get close to fully preventing new cases or new variants. So pretty clear. So why did the Prime Minister choose not to do the one thing that Sage said could prevent new variants coming to the United Kingdom? Prime Minister. Uh, well, actually, Mr Speaker, Sage did not uh, recommend a uh, complete ban, and uh, they say that uh, uh, travel bans should not be relied upon to stop importation of new variants. But we do have, Mr Speaker, one of the toughest regimes uh, in the world, and... Uh, anybody uh, coming from South Africa uh, not only has to uh, do a test before they, they come here, uh, but uh, anybody coming from South Africa now, a British citizen returning from South Africa now, uh, will find themselves obliged uh, to go into uh, quarantine uh, for 10 days uh, and uh, they will have a, uh, an isolation uh, assurance agency checking up on them. And it is illegal now. Uh, Mr. Speaker, uh, to go uh, to, on holiday in this country. It is illegal uh, to travel uh, from uh, South Africa or all the countries on uh, the current red list. And we are, will be going for, for, forward, Mr. Speaker, with a plan to ensure that people coming uh, into this country uh, from those uh, red list countries immediately have to go into government-mandated uh, quarantine uh, hospitality. Boris Johnson there uh, responded to the question from Keir Starmer. It actually relates to a story um, broken by uh, Stephen Swinford in The Times earlier this week. Uh, the, the, the SAGE committee had uh, the scientific advisory group for emergencies um, had uh, previously said that geographically targeted travel bans would not be enough to stop the strain, uh, the arrival of new strains. And the scientists said the only way to get close to stopping them was uh, either by closing the borders completely or introducing mandatory quarantine measures for everyone entering Britain, which, of course, uh, Priti Patel and Matt Hancock were quite keen on, and Boris Johnson resisted. Tim Shipman. Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, wonderful dancing on the head of a pin answer from Boris Johnson there, which is the same line that Downing Street wheeled out after that time story, which is that Sage said the only way to do this is to, is, is to close the borders. Um, but they apparently stopped short of recommending that that actually happen. And then Downing Street say, oh, well, it wasn't recommended, so uh, we didn't do it. Um, uh, you know, there are perfectly good arguments uh, if you want to make them against that. But it's intriguing that Boris Johnson and Number 10 have not made those arguments. They've merely said that Sage did not recommend it when it's blindingly obvious that Sage was saying, um, uh, unless you do this, you potentially have problems. And anyone who knows Matt Hancock and the people around him will tell you that he's very concerned. The problem is lots of countries do not have an ability to test for, for coronavirus uh, particularly effectively. And unless they have good tests, we are lucky that Brazil and South Africa do have those tests. Um, and we know that they have a problem, um, so we can stop them. But there, must, there might be lots of countries where they're not testing. We don't know uh, whether there are variants and people can continue to come in. Um, now, there's a good economic argument that you need to keep uh, trade going and keep borders open, but that's not the argument Boris Johnson made. Oh, well, let's go back and see if Keir Starmer has any luck, uh, more luck on his uh, second question. Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, I'm intrigued by the Prime Minister's answer. I don't think he disputes what Sage's view was, that only a complete closure or comprehensive quarantine of all arrivals will work. He doesn't seem to dispute that. He says it simply wasn't a recommendation. I would ask the Prime Minister to publish the full Sage minutes so that we can see what was said in full, or if there's some other advice, perhaps publish that. Because the situation is this. We know the South African variant is spreading across England, and measures are in place to try to deal with that. We also know that other variants are out there in other parts of the world. So is the Prime Minister really saying, just as a matter of common sense, is he saying 
that quarantining all arrivals would make no difference to fighting new variants of the virus? Or is he saying that quarantining all arrivals at the border would make a difference, but it's too difficult to do it? Mr Speaker, this is the right honourable gentleman who uh, only recently said that quarantine measures uh, were a blunt instrument and whose shadow transport secretary uh, said that quarantine uh, should be lessened. We have one of the toughest uh, regimes uh, in, the, in the world and I think he, when he calls for uh, a complete closure of, of borders or, 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 or suggests that that might be an option, Mr Speaker, he should be aware uh, that 75% of our medicines come into this country uh, from uh, the European continent, 45% uh, of our food, uh, 250,000 businesses in this country uh, rely on, on imports. It is not practical uh, completely to close off this country, as he uh, seems to be suggesting. Uh, what is practical to do is have one of the toughest regimes in the world uh, and to get on with vaccinating the people of, the country, of this country, which is what we are doing, Mr Speaker. Mr. Speaker, uh, so, what do you make of that, Tim Shipman? Did the, the, um, they're both arguing. They're both. It just feels like they're both digging in, but we're not really getting anywhere. Yeah, I mean, I've actually just had a message from someone in government who points out that Starmer wants the the Sage papers published, which of course they will be in due course. Uh, and my source says it will also show that Starmer's plan doesn't work either, um, and uh, is not uh, wholly effective. So. Um, it looks like this argument is going to play out again when the Sage Papers are released. The trouble is the Sage Papers don't tend to get published uh, for a few weeks uh, after... They do uh, tend they've... to have been overtaken by events. By the time we get the Sage uh, Papers, that you know we're on to the next set of recommendations or decisions and, and that sort of thing. We should point out, Boris Johnson keeps using this line about the Shadow Transport Secretary wanting quarantine measures to be relaxed. Jim, Jim Mahon, who is the Shadow Transport Secretary, has pointed out that that was some 200 days ago in July last year, and uh, things have moved on a little bit since then. But it's obviously a, it's obviously a fact which has uh, lodged itself in Boris Johnson's mind. Uh, let's go back to get question three then from Keir Starmer. Because what he says about the Labour position is complete nonsense. He knows it. It's the 3rd of February 2021. With new variants in the country, our schools are shut and our borders are open. Everybody knows there are exceptions, uh, whatever the quarantine re re regime, everybody knows that. And that's not what this question is about. The position is this, 21,000 people are coming into this country every day. The Prime Minister's new border arrangements are still weeks away from being implemented and will only affect direct flights from some countries. We know from the first wave of the pandemic that only 0.1% of virus cases came from China, where we had restrictions, whereas 62% came indirectly from France and Spain, where there were no restrictions. Why does the Prime Minister think that the variants of the virus will behave differently and only arrive in the UK by direct flights? Minister. Mr Speaker, he, he can't have it both ways. Uh, he simultaneously says that he wants the borders to be kept open uh, for freight reasons or for, to allow businesses to, to carry on. I think that, that was what uh, uh, he, was, uh, he was saying, uh, whilst calling for, for tougher quarantine measures, which is exactly what this government uh, imposed as soon as we became aware of the, of the new variant, uh, Mr Speaker. And uh, the, we, as I repeat what, the, what you have to do. If you want to come into this country uh, from abroad, uh, you have to... 72 hours before you fly, uh, you have to get a test, uh, Mr Speaker. Uh, you have to have a passenger locator form. You're kicked off the plane if you don't have it. You then have to spend 10 days, uh, Mr Speaker, in uh, quarantine. If you come from one of the, uh, one of the red list countries, Mr Speaker, you have to go straight uh, into quarantine. And uh, all, all of this, of course, is to allow us to get on with a vaccination programme. And if it had listened to the right honourable gentleman, Mr Speaker, we would still be at the starting blocks because he wanted to stay in the European medicine agency, Mr Speaker, and said so four times from that dispatch box. There we are. That's the, that's the Brexit klaxon um, uh, card, oh, dangerously close to being played again by Boris Johnson. Really interesting thing about this, it, it, um, Keir Starmer has obviously decided to just keep pushing away at this quarantining and closing the borders. If you look at the polling, so this is a couple of weeks ago, some YouGov polling, I think before the, the government actually announced uh, what it was doing, 
total support for requiring travellers to the UK to quarantine alone in a hotel for 10 days. 87% of voters uh, altogether, 91% of Tory voters, 86% of Labour voters, 90% of Lib Dem, uh, you know, almost exactly the same on Remain and Leave and men and women. So Keir Starmer knows he's sort of pushing at whatever the rights and wrongs and the economic or the epidemiological arguments, he knows that overall the public think if we want to stop something coming into the country, we should stop people coming into the country from wherever they're coming from. And so he's, he's sort of putting himself on the side of you know, the great British public and their, their sense of common sense. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've sat through a bunch of focus groups last week, young Remainers and old Brexiteers all agreed emphatically that they like this. I think uh, schools closed, borders open is by some distance the most effective little slogan that Keir Starmer has come up with since he became Labour leader. And they're now um, uh, doing adverts with that very slogan in red wall seats that they lost to the Conservative Party in 2019. Uh, this is a big deal. Um, but interesting, uh, we thought we'd get a Johnson pivot uh, towards um, Brexit. And, uh, and, you know, uh, to be fair to this government, they... They, they were sort of right about this stuff. I remember talking to ministers last year and they said, we don't want to be in this scheme because we'll have to hand our vaccine over to them. Uh, they'll move slower than us. And, and that is duly what... Oh, and behold, uh, that's what's happened. Yeah, that's what's happened. Well, let's see uh, if Keir Starmer raises to the Brexit d- uh, uh, bait uh, in his fourth question. Nonsense. Don't let the truth get in the way of a pre-prepared gag. Ooh. Mr Speaker, the... the pr- the Prime Minister knows I've never said that uh, from this dispatch box or anywhere else, but um, the truth uh, escapes him. Mr Speaker, he describes the current arrangements. If they were working, if they were working, the variant wouldn't be in the country, the single biggest threat to the vaccine system. Mr Speaker, let me turn to another area where the government's been slow to act. The cladding crisis. This is affecting millions of people. And I can't tell the Prime Minister how anxious and angry people feel about this. It's now three and a half years since the Grenfell tragedy, which took 72 lives. So can the Prime Minister tell the House and the country why, three and a half years on, are there still hundreds of thousands of people living in homes with unsafe cladding? Three and a half years on, and why are millions of leaseholders in homes that they can't sell and facing extortionate costs? Uh, just, just to jump in on that, it was brought out that the Labour Party had a, had a vote on this on an opposition day uh, motion earlier this week. But actually, it's the Sunday Times has been campaigning on this for about 12 months, Tim. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it's an absolute scandal, frankly. Um, you've got um, a bunch of people who are being expected to pay for the removal of uh, this dangerous cladding. You know, uh, as Starmer points out, we are years after Grenfell. I know ministers in government who think that the one thing that could sink this government like a stone would be a repeat of Grenfell um, when, frankly, they have failed to deal with this issue. Um, Robert Jenrick, the housing secretary, is busy bashing away. Um, he can't get the money out of the Treasury. Um, but if they don't sort this out soon, um, it really is going to be a, a millstone round their necks. Um, and Starmer's had a good result, got involved on Monday, um, got some good publicity, and he's, uh, you know, he's having another go. Yeah, it was telling that they, they really pushed it as a sort of the big media round on Monday morning rather than talking about the borders question. But let's see if Boris Johnson's got anything to actually answer that question. Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, in respect to the honourable gentleman's last answer, may I c- c- advise him to consult YouTube uh, where he will find an answer? Uh, but uh, on, he, may, he raises a very important point about, uh, about cladding and the predicament of, uh, of some leaseholders, of many leaseholders. And uh, he's absolutely right, Mr Speaker, this is a problem that uh, needs to be fixed. Uh, this government is, is getting on with it. Uh, 95% of the high-rise buildings with uh, unsafe ACM cladding uh, have uh, been, uh, work is either underway, they are either complete or underway to remove that cladding, Mr Speaker. I, I very much appreciate and sympathise with the predicament of uh, leaseholders who are in that uh, situation, but we are working to clear uh, the backlog and I can tell him that the, my run-on friend, the Chancellor and the Community Secretary will be coming forward with a full package to address the issue. Uh, how was how that? Is that the answer you, you were looking for there, Tim Shimon? Well, I mean, a full package. I mean, I think he's said before, coming soon. I mean, we'll wait and see. I mean, the fact is, people around Robert Jenrick were briefing against the Chancellor uh, at the end of last week because they couldn't get the money. So uh, I suspect this will be resolved sometime uh, around the budget, which is in, you know, four weeks' time. Um, so they're arguing now over what money goes where. Um, and I suspect this will be part of that settlement. But uh, uh, it's going to have to be good. Uh, well, let's see if it's satisfied Keir Starmer. 
Mr. Speaker, whatever the Prime Minister claims being done isn't working. Because this is the situation, through no fault of their own, huge numbers of people, especially leaseholders, are stuck in the middle. They are living in unsafe homes. They can't sell and they're being asked to foot the bill. That's the situation that they are in. Take, for example, Will Martin. He's a doctor who's got a flat in Sheffield. He's been spending his days on the front line fighting COVID in the NHS. He spends his nights worrying about the £52,000 bill that he now has to pay for fire safety repairs. He doesn't want future promises, Prime Minister. He doesn't want to hear that it's all been sorted when he knows that it hasn't. He wants to know here and now, will he or will he not have to pay that £52,000 bill? Mr Speaker, we're determined that no leaseholder should have to pay uh, for the uh, unaffordable costs of fixing safety defects that uh, they didn't cause and uh, uh, no fault of their own. And that's why, in addition to the £1.6 billion we're putting in uh, to remove the, uh, the ACM uh, and the UPL cladding, uh, we are also uh, setting up and uh, have set up a £1 billion uh, building safety fund, which has already uh, processed uh, over uh, almost 3,000 claims. And I, I sympathise very much with the, uh, the gentleman, uh, that he, Mr. Dr Martin, that he, uh, he, he mentions, and I hope very much that his particular case can be addressed in the course of the forthcoming uh, package that will be produced by my right honourable friends. Uh, that, that was sort of same question, same answer, really. Um, uh, wait, wait for the budget and uh, in Keir Starmer. Yeah. So it's, he's gone far enough to suggest that they, you know, will deal with it, and if they don't, that will then come back and bite him. Uh, and probably the uh, the opposition day motion this week and the pressure that put on lots of Tory MPs might have helped to focus minds a little bit in the Treasury in number 10. Uh, let's go back and hear from Keir Starmer. Then last question from Keir Starmer at PMQs. There are thousands and thousands of people in exactly the same position. I spoke to leaseholders caught in the middle of this on Monday. One of them was Haley. She's already gone bankrupt, Mr Prime Minister. She's 27. She bought a flat. She's lost it. She's now bankrupt. It's too late for her. Those leaseholders that I spoke to had three very simple asks. This is what they want. Immediate upfront funding for unsafe blocks. A deadline of next year to make buildings safe and protection for leaseholders. We put those forward for a vote on Monday. The Prime Minister says he's determined to do something about it. What did he do? He ordered his MPs to abstain. If the Prime Minister is serious about moving this forward and ending this injustice, Will he commit today to those simple asks from leaseholders? Mr Speaker, we're getting on with uh, the job of helping leaseholders across the country by remediating their, their buildings. And in addition to the funds I've already mentioned, I can tell him uh, that we're also in, uh, introducing a, a £30 million fund to install uh, alarms and other interim measures. And we're making it very clear uh, to the mortgage industry that they should be supporting uh, people uh, living in such, uh, in such accommodation and, uh, that, uh, the, uh, and making it clear to, to all sectors of the industry that uh, people living in such homes uh, should not uh, be tied up in the whole UZ, uh, EWS1 uh, process. And, and that will benefit about 450,000 uh, homeowners, Mr Speaker. I, I think he's right uh, to raise the problem, but we're getting on with addressing it, Mr Speaker. And we're getting on with addressing the fundamental problem that afflicts this country, and that is the COVID pandemic. And that's why I'm pleased that we've now done 10 million uh, vaccines, uh, first vaccinations across the country. Uh, and I, I repeat, Mr. Speaker, uh, had we listened to the right honourable gentleman, uh, we, would, we would be stuck uh, at, at go, because uh, he's, he's shaking his head, but he can check the record uh, several times. He said that this country should remain in the European Medicines Agency. And if he wishes to, uh, to on a point of order, to correct me, because he said it, he said it was wrong uh, just now, uh, I think he should study the record and he find that is exactly uh, what he did. Uh, we want to get this country uh, safe again. We want schools uh, to come back. Mr Speaker, uh, he continues to refuse to say that schools uh, aren't safe, uh, Mr Speaker. And in, in, on the contrary, he spends his time looking at, uh, looking at Labour uh, focus groups uh, who, tell him, uh, who tell him that he should stop uh, sitting on the fence. No, no, Prime Minister, just in fairness, I think We've got to be somewhere near the question that was asked. And I don't want you to go around the world answering every problem and issue. There's a lot more questions who's going to allow you to do that. And the first one's coming, Marco Longhi. 
I did wonder, Tim Shipman, when uh, Boris Johnson was going to get around to this story in The Guardian about the, the Labour Party focus groups, and uh, which revealed that, uh, surprise, surprise, we sit through focus groups on Times Radio. You've been doing them for, for the Sunday Times. Voters think Keir Starmer sits on the fence. And they've been talking about they're going to wrap themselves in the flag. And uh, unfortunately, Boris Johnson took such a long time to get there. Uh, the, uh, the, the Speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, cut him off. Well, often with those roundup answers at the end, one calls it a greatest hits of Boris Johnson's life. That, that wasn't so much a greatest hits as a sort of rather dreadful compilation album, <laughs> which didn't really hang together in any meaningful way. I did think it was rather bold of Keir Starmer to have a go at Boris Johnson um, for asking his MPs to abstain on a vote, which is the very thing that uh, those focus groups are telling uh, the Labour leader um, is a problem for him because he's done that several times as well. Uh, One might say that uh, he was adopting uh, Johnson's preferred approach of uh, have one's cake and eat it there. Um, (laughs) But it's also replete with uh, mild hypocrisy on both sides, I would say. (laughs) It's interesting, though, isn't it, that... um... On those, on the the big issue that he abstained on uh, previously, was that on Brexit? It was on it, but it was on like a big government vote. Whereas on what was happening this week, the Labour Party rightly put in the issue of cladding uh, and uh, the borders on the table and having a debate and then a vote at the end, but it has no impact at all on uh, on the outcome. The the big giveaway, there's clearly a lot of money coming uh, for uh, to deal with this cladding problem, is when Boris Johnson started quoting particular. Um, was it UZ or E W S I, Matt? I mean, E-W-S-I. Yeah. He's clearly been, he's, what that means, but he has clearly mugged up. Which is he's mugged up. He's had a brief. He said, "How do we get a grip on this?" Um, and so, yeah, if, if there was more proof that you needed, that there was an announcement on this coming very soon. Boris Johnson showing off that he's read a brief on it is probably the best, uh, the best possible example. Um, I was listening uh, to his answers very closely there because he has been known to blurt the policy out by mistake when he's sort of defending himself. He didn't quite do it today. But... Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing. Uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1, is available on DAB, online, via smart speaker or on the Times radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. 